The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. You're listening to the Underdog Sports NBA Show. Cross green. With host Tyler Laurie and Zandrick Ellison. Brought to you by Underdog Sports. Tune in every week as Tyler and Zan recap the biggest storylines and news in the NBA. Welcome to episode 52 of the Underdog Sports NBA show. I am Tyler Laurie and I am joined as always by my co-host, Live from Rodeo Drive, Zandrick Ellison. Zan, how are you today? I'm good. Well, you know, my brain is buzzing because we pre-recorded that we're going to air at the end of the show an interview with the analytical guru, teen wonderkin Tal Boguer, about um, the draft and analytics and machine learning. So my like brain is just buzzing with new ideas and my, it's been expanded. So people should stick around for that. But also we wanted to talk with you two dummies just to kind of lower the bar i guess to start i mean it's hold on real quick before we'll, we'll, we'll get to tal and we'll kind of talk about the interview a little bit afterwards as well just because he's just so smart for an 18 year old but if we have any front office members that listen to this show like this is a guy that you you definitely want to lock down and we talked a little bit about just kind of the top 10 picks in the draft and and all-star probabilities and and how he kind of came up with his code for this and it's just like you said, Zan, it's, it's one of those conversations where you talk with somebody and you're just like, wow, they're on another wavelength. But also it, it makes you kind of consider and, and wonder why or how you want to use these numbers, you know, to, and what does it all mean? So really interesting discussion with Tal and his second time on the show. So it was cool to have him back on. Yeah. And what's also just thinking, you know, analytics is all about like thinking outside the box or pushing the boundaries of, you know, common not common sense just sort of you know the way things are yeah and and i think that's good for all sports and i think basketball specifically has gotten a lot smarter and over the last decade and i think it will continue to be and it's still not like a perfect science by any means i don't think analytical people would tell you that they figured it out but they're in the process of trying to do that yeah no doubt about it and i think one of the things is you can tell that tal actually watches a good bit of basketball as well so it's not like he's sitting in front of 47 computer screens every day just throwing numbers in there you know, when we asked him about specific prospects, like he was able to speak to how they were used and, and the schemes that they played in in college. And I, I think for an 18 year old who does not have high level basketball experience or even any you know high level playing experience, like I, I was impressed by that. Zan. I, I think like that's the biggest hurdle that people in the analytics field face is that like if you're 538 and you roll out Draymond, all these high level players are like, you guys are idiots. And it doesn't necessarily lend any credence to like, hey, like, you want to use both of these things. You want to use numbers and what you see on film because you're, you know, as a guy who never played and, and I never played at a high level, but there's always going to be things that I'm not going to know that a former player is going to know, but they're also going to have biases that I may not have or an analytics person may not have because I, they've never been in that situation. So they may be able to. Yeah. It's like blind spots. You want somebody yeah. like in your rear view, checking your rear view mirror or whatever that is. But so Tao's a certified genius. We're giving him that. And I want to see if, if you would grant me that title as an eccentric genius, because I have some big ideas that are not. Big. That's the name of the show, right? This is, this is episode 52 is think tank. We've got a couple things to discuss for the next like 15 minutes. Yeah. It's a brainstorming and you know, not all great ideas, but maybe one or two spark to you. And so last week I teased the idea of conference realignment and I wanted to get into that. So I want to run it by you brainstorming session. This is like me pitching an idea to you, my boss and see if you'll run with it. You'll pitch it to Adam Silver. He'll be on next week after Tal. Okay, let's hear it. 
Well, because last week I asked you a simple question. I asked you, you hear it all the time. Should, you know, the West is stronger than the East. Do they need to uh, reseed the playoffs, you know, and have, you know, make, mix it up. And, and theoretically the best two teams could meet in the finals. And you supported that. You, you're on record supporting that silly idea, right? I am. I am on, on record supporting that. I do think, still think the schedule should be somewhat unbalanced just to kind of avoid travel, but I would rather just seed one through, honestly, one through 30 or, you know, I just think that's better. One through 30. <laughs> well, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. But like the top sixteen teams make the playoffs. Right. I just think if you if you do that, you have to um, balance the schedules. I think it's just silly not to. But um, the, the problem I have with it, honestly, is with it just like throws away the idea of like structure and rivalries and you know like whatever like a like Boston and Philadelphia they they play a few times in the playoffs and you kind of see that like rivalry build. Like I care more about watching that series than I would toronto portland one year and then you know toronto golden state the next like i it means nothing to me it's just like lumped in teams so the point is if you if you don't take the conferences seriously in the playoffs then you shouldn't have conferences it should just be you know 30 teams in the nba why have a conference yeah yeah but i think it should go the other way this is my big pitch to you rather than having two conferences or going down to one conference we establish four conferences how is that different than four divisions i'll tell you how i'm glad you asked my friend this is like our infomercial <laughs> so let me pitch you the are you the, are you the billy mays of nba realignment yeah did he die didn't somebody have like a tragic fate r.i.p to a legend he also was apparently into into some illegal substances but anyway so billy give us the four conferences <laughs> oh wait there's more it's four conferences <laughs> uh, i even have the conferences i wrote them down the Atlantic League, I call them leagues. Um, Atlantic League, Boston, Brooklyn, the Knicks, Miami, Orlando, Philadelphia, Washington, all Eastern seaboard teams, natural rivalries there, right? And we're even throwing in Baltimore as an expansion team because I want to make it eight each. And Baltimore maybe doesn't deserve a team, but you know, after Donald Trump, we'll give. Okay, them a, hold on a second. Not, not, and again, this is this is how much work you can see that the two of us did that I'm hearing this for the first time, but so. We are adding two expansion teams as right. well. Right. I want to make it, I'm all about symmetry. If you have four leagues, I want eight teams in each league. So we have to add two teams. Right now, there's only 30 teams in the NBA. The, I call the Northern League, the North, basically. So, Chicago. You're giving, so Baltimore is the one that gets uh, You know, we'll, th- we'll, we'll negotiate that. You know, I know you think it's a rat infested mess, but I happen to like this. <laughs> I like, I like Baltimore. I like Baltimore. Okay. Northern league, Chicago, Cleveland, Denver, Detroit, Denver's a little bit of a, sh- a shady one, but Detroit, Indiana, Milwaukee, Minnesota, Toronto, all natural rivals. Um, the idea that Minnesota and Milwaukee are in different leagues is a little silly given the fact that they're so close together. Southern league, Atlanta, Dallas, Charlotte, Houston, Memphis, New Orleans, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Pacific League, you can kind of figure out Golden State, Clippers, Lakers, Phoenix, Portland, Sacramento, Seattle, and Utah. Seattle's an expansion team. The point is, they're all generally, there's enough for four leagues that generally make sense. Would you agree if you had to divide them up? Yeah, but it feels like you screwed up the expansion league. The, the Seattle, obviously, Seattle obviously makes total sense, but it does feel that like, it, it feels like you have Toronto in the wrong league. Toronto? Well, they're in the north. They should probably be in the... They, I know, we the north. They should probably be in the east and then give the expansion team to the north. Mm. Well, I, 
Not that this is what we were originally going to talk about, but I just, it is. Charlotte's in the South of Dallas. That's a long flight, Um, but whatever. Okay. So we have these four leagues. We'll, we'll sort out the expansion teams then. Okay. Okay. So far. Now we're going to, I'm on board. I'm all on board, but I'm all about symmetry and balance. So what you do is you play four games against your league and two games against every other team. So that, that balances out to 76 games in the season. So it's a little lower than 82, but you know, I don't think we really need to play 82 games, right? Right. You've been wanting to get rid of the 82 game schedule for a while. Right. That's going to tie into my next big idea later on. But so we have 76 game schedule and the four best teams in each league make the playoffs. And it's essentially you like separate them. Each league has their own playoff. And so say in the Atlantic League, you know, four of these eight teams are going to make the playoffs. The best team is going to win and advance to basically the final four of the NBA. So each league would have one champion. And then from there, you reseed and play the, the final four, you know, champions together. It's sort of like a fun bracket taking it from the NCAA tournament. But here's, here's the point more than anything else. I know you're wondering why. What's the point of all this, right? I am. I am currently wondering what's the point of all this. Actually, just the point of us doing a podcast in general, so you can get your crazy ideas out there. No, but here's the point. The, we talk about it all the time. This is a sort of like title or bust mentality in the NBA, and making the finals is a great achievement. But at times, it's like denigrated. Like, oh, LeBron lost in the finals. That's bad. You know, <laughs> like no, it should be good to make the finals. And stuff like Portland, hey, Portland made the final four last year, essentially, but no one's going to remember that. No one really cares. It doesn't mean anything. So the idea that you can win a league title actually gives these teams something else to play for and something else to like, consider themselves a huge victory. Like, you know, as a college coach, making the final four is a huge deal. So making a league to winning the league championship means a lot more to me than making a conference final. And I think it's something that you could be proud of and it establishes more goals. Like say, say you're a team like Portland, maybe you're not going to win the title, but winning your league title is attainable and it's a worthy goal. And that's more than anything, the point of this restructure. Why, why do we need to restructure it to four instead? Like, I understand what you're saying in terms of like people might care in the middle of the league, but why, why not just figure out a way to balance the schedule to try to balance the schedule, whether it be you play everybody three times and then the next year, you know, like it's just rotating over a three year period. Like why not do that? And then just seed one through 16 or whatever. Well, and here's another twist and there's good and bad. I acknowledge the good and bad, like theoretically um, the two best teams could be in the same league, right? So the Clippers and the Lakers, let's say they each win 60 games this year, 65 games. They would, not make the final four. One of the two would not make the final four. That's a I mean, big problem. I, I would argue that the two best teams have been in, uh, not this year. I, I, I didn't think this year. I, I, I legitimately thought Milwaukee was one of the best two teams in the regular season, but I would argue like the last three years. Yeah. In the last three years in the West, like. Right. So if they're in the same league, this, this hurts them. But theoretically, let's say, remember when Golden State and Houston two years ago were the best two teams. In this system, they could meet in the finals because we reseed after the league championship. So Houston and Golden State would be on opposite bracket sides and then play each other in the finals. So you would theoretically get the two best teams in the finals more often than not, unless they happen to be in the same league. So there is a pro and con to it. Yeah, I don't mind that. I also don't mind the idea of just reseeding in general. 
like kind of, you know, how the NFL does it where right. like after you lose, if you, if you upset, then you kind of recede, but, but maybe you don't, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't recede. I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems like this year is going to suck because, and we actually said this last year, although I was very excited for the top of the Eastern conference. Like I thought one through four in the East last year was pretty strong. And I, I would include Boston. I, I didn't think Indy was strong, obviously, although they finished with the four seed, but the whole like Toronto, Milwaukee, Philly, Boston group was was quite good and we were excited about that and I think we both talked about that but like the 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 east this year it's just Milwaukee's gonna be good Philly's gonna be good Toronto's probably gonna be fine but like the west is just ridiculously stacked and it seems very plausible that like five of the best seven teams in the NBA are in the west maybe more than that honestly Zan and so I do obviously nothing's changing with the playoffs but I do wonder if like our guy Adam Silver is out there thinking like hey we need to figure out a way to make sure that we get the best matchups. And, and this year, obviously, this past year with Toronto, there was really nothing we could do because, like, Toronto at full strength against Golden State at full strength would have probably been a pretty fun series. But, you know, we I got... I don't know about that, but... I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Golden State wins in five, but we didn't get to see that. We got to see... And then largely the, the conference finals stunk, too. You know, the, I would say the two best series were Houston and Golden State and then Philly and uh, Toronto, and then also Portland and Denver. Like, those three were the three best series, and they were not the conference finals or the finals, and I think that's a problem for the NBA. Well, it definitely is going to get worse if, you know, we mentioned before, the nightmare scenario didn't really happen this year. The eighth seed in the West was 48 wins, Clippers. Sacramento at nine was all the way down at 39. But it's theoretically possible that it's happened before that a team like 48 or 49 win team is going to miss the playoffs in the West. And then it will reunite all these sort of, you know, anger and resentment. About it this. could it could happen. Doesn't seem likely this year because those teams in the West just cannibalize each other. So it's very very hard because the bottom of the West is just not going to be that bad this year. Uh, what's your next big idea? You said you had another one. Yeah, so that was rejected. You're saying you're inside the box thinker. I don't love it. I don't love the idea of adding the two expansion teams. Uh, I I I like thirty. I think eight teams making the playoffs on each side is good. I do think we need to figure out a way to. I don't even think we need to figure out a way to, link, to shorten the schedule, but I, I do think there are some small things to tinker with for sure. And it's true. Like, I don't think this is necessary at all. Of course, I, this is the kind of thing that's necessary when it's a slow week of news in the NBA and you need to fill a podcast. So this is where I save my big ideas for these kind of weeks. The big news, you know, CJ McCollum signed, Bradley Beal did not sign. We could talk about that, but they're not huge news stories right now. Right. McCollum, three years, $100 million extension. Brad Beal turns down three years, $111 million from the Wizards. Simple, simple thing here, Zan, right? CJ McCollum seems unlikely to make all NBA in the West, and he wants to stay with Portland, and so get your money right now. Brad Beal, he is going to have a chance to make an all NBA team this year. If he does, he can sign a $254 million extension next year. It makes no sense for him to not sign right now like it just or to him to sign right now even if he wants to stay in dc like so everyone's saying like dc should panic like absolutely not they knew that brad beal was not signing an extension so and even just because cj mccollum did doesn't mean that brad beal was ever going to it doesn't change any of that scenario but that's just a short little thing on that um so here's my next big idea so i left out it went down to 76 games in my concept of the new nba regardless of whether or not you want to reconf- restructure and realign, I, I do think it doesn't need to be 82 games. I would get rid of back-to-backs. You know, why regular season gets pretty boring. Um, but here's a way to spice up the regular season. You take those extra games. And the great thing about the NBA is it's so international, but all the games, with the exception of Toronto, are played in the 
United States of America, right? So at one point, it doesn't have to be during the all-star break. It could be any time. You fly, let's say, four teams, eight teams, whatever like a tournament grouping would be, during the regular season, out to various locations around the world and play sort of a mid-season tournament in different locations. So like China, like that you send eight teams, four teams out to China to play like a China cup to win a little mini title in China during the regular season and actually count those games in the standings as a way to expand the, the global brand and also a way to spice up the regular season. Everyone loves a tournament. So as you know, they did do this last year, and uh, I believe they played in the NBA had some games in London. I think, but they were preseason, right? No, the Wizards and the Knicks played a real game in London. Yeah, but that's a one game. There's nothing like a tournament. Come on, correct? They, have and they do have, and they do have preseason games, obviously. So last year, yeah, last year Knicks, and they've done some Oklahoma. They've done games in Mexico City, but only Mexico City and London. Those have been the only two places, and they've done about uh, one or two games a year, pretty much for the last, you know. 10 years since about 2011. But I do agree. The NBA is a very global sport. And I do think doing something in the regular season where not not necessarily like a tournament, but whether it does, whether it is like a pod of like four or six teams goes out there and sort of plays around Robin out there. I think it's a good idea. Right. And like when you send one team, you know, the NFL does this in London, they send it, but there's no structure to it. There's no beginning, middle and end. So you know, like the Jaguars versus the Bears, one game in London, like no one really cares. Nobody cared about the Wizards and Knicks in London last year either. You had no star power, like you had two bad teams. You you got to send like Clay Thompson to China, you know? Well, like, that's what you yeah, exactly, do. exactly. Like China would be a huge one, of course. But um, you send them out there and with a group, like it makes the travel worth it. Hey, four teams are going and they're going to be able to play like three games. So it's not just like one one off. And then in terms of like adding stakes, I like the idea of adding even more stakes. So they count as regular season games, but the team that wins the little mini tournament in China, let's say the China cup, four teams went out there and every team goes to a different location. So this is not like unfair. So if you win your little international tournament, you get a little bonus or something, not, not money. I'm saying you get an extra win, let's say, and the standings. So like Brooklyn, finish 42 and 40 if they won the china cup they finished 43 and 40 they get a little extra win that could affect them in the standings so two things not to, not to just like poop on this but like this is never going to happen like the in-season tournament is great like i you know i saw the idea for like the in-season lottery tournament or the uh, the end of season tournament to see who makes the playoffs but like owners don't want to give up revenue especially not for good teams that actually sell out their stadiums they don't want to lose TV money because you're going to lose advertising money if you're playing in China and your game is airing 12 hours away and in the middle of the night. You know, like, so that's not going to happen. And NBA players are not going to agree to multi-time zone travel for an extended period of time in the midst of like a super busy six-month schedule. So like this, while not a bad idea in terms of like expanding a brand, having like a mid-season tournament where you have to spend actual time out there in the middle of the season is just not ever something that's like going to happen unless the NBA actually just like expands out and adds teams in say China or Europe or whatever. Like they go grab two EuroLeague teams and they're all, it's just not going to happen. It's not a bad idea in theory, but it's just in practice, it's so much harder to implement. It's an investment. And I I think the idea ultimately would be, um, you know, my league idea for leagues, 
the way the NBA could work internationally is like that sort of league system where it's it's pretty like structure uh, segregated and and there are four eight teams in Europe, let's say eight teams in Europe in their own league, and the winner of the European league you know plays the winner of the you know North American league or something like that, where you need having just one floating team in London is not going to make sense. You need enough games over there and like their own division at least so they could play the majority of games against each other. Yeah, I I think it's, again, I do think global expansion has long been the plans of David Stern before Adam Silver and now Adam Silver. Like, I think this is a big thing for them. And I think they're realizing, you know, with the, with the strength of like the basketball tournament and being able to show Euro league games over here and how strong some European leagues actually are. And, you know, Americans experiences playing overseas. I, I do think that, that's something that's coming. But I don't know when or how, honestly. And I think, like, just even throwing out ideas like this is very good for the NBA's brand because it means that, like, you know, I I do think if you had two NBA teams, I think if you had an NBA team in Hong Kong, like, it would do really well. The problem is, like, you just can't have one, you know, team out on an island. It doesn't really work like that. And, you know, and we've seen teams fail in other markets before, so. Well, here's here's a question for you then, too, just an offshoot of this, because you rejected... Baltimore because you're racist and what about like if say Adam Silver came to you and said like I do want to expand to 32 I just like a nice even number Seattle I think you said is a good idea what what team do you think do you think they should go to back into Canada do you think they should go to Mexico or should they pick Vegas like Vegas probably probably Las Vegas I mean I know like there's some people that want a team in Nashville I, I think it's unlikely with there obviously being a team in Memphis already uh but yeah Vegas seems to probably make the most sense considering how strong their NHL numbers were. They're obviously getting a football team. You know, the Raiders are going there now. I think like Vegas just makes sense. Uh, I don't know how much sense it makes as like, but as another winter sports, but they already have T-Mobile arena there. So Vegas makes sense. I don't think you can put a team in Mexico right now. Right. I mean, people, like, you know, people say Mexico is a big market. Like Mexico city is a huge city. It's, I looked it up. It's, it's about four hour flight from Texas. So like it is, pretty south in Mexico City specifically. Um, so travel would get tough. Well, let me throw this last question to you then. The harder question. Say you, you think expansion, let's say they get their books in, the NBA is not doing as well as they thought. We're going to go the other way. We're going to contract two teams. Oklahoma City and Charlotte. See ya. And then the other candidates, maybe Memphis, just based on market. Memphis does pretty well. Uh, I don't. I don't actually know in terms of like what their actual ticket sales are and stuff. But yeah, you had Memphis, that answer really quick in the chat. I, I think Charlotte makes more sense than Memphis, to be totally honest. Just because Charlotte's a growing city and Memphis is not. But like you know, your Oklahoma Oklahoma City is one for sure, and and that probably shouldn't have existed in the first place. I do think New Orleans is always a candidate because the basketball like mindset there. I mean, with Zion now, like it seems like people will care, but it's much more of a football town. It's also much more of a like tourist location. The actual city itself has had a really hard time rebounding from Katrina. So like, that's why Charlotte probably makes sense to keep because of how booming kind of like the research triangle in Charlotte areas are. So, but I, I would, I would assume Oklahoma city would be the forefront. And then, yeah, I do think like you said, like I think Memphis and I think probably New Orleans would, th- those three would probably be the first two to go. Like, and if you were going to move those teams. Right. Too. So like, what do you think happens first? Like a team expands into Seattle or like Oklahoma city moves back to Seattle. And that's a really good question. I, wow. I don't know. I, I really don't. It, it feels like, moving Oklahoma city is smarter than starting an expansion team because you 
sort of keyed on this, but like the league doesn't want to have 31 teams. It's going to be 30 or 32, right? I mean, it just makes no sense to have like one conference have 16 and one conference have 15. So, and I don't know. I, I like the idea of symmetry 32. sounds good to me, but you could certainly make the argument in the NBA, like 20 teams feel pretty irrelevant every year. So like, do we really, maybe not, this, maybe not this year, but yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, that's just the way it is. I mean, for the first time in a long time, like, I mean, shoot, I think Golden State has been like a better than even money favorite to win the NBA title for four straight years. Maybe not 2014, but 15, 16, all the years that Kevin Durant was there. And then obviously the 73 win year team, 73 wins in a year, like they were more than even money. So this is the first year we haven't had a a preseason title contender or title favorite that's been better than even money in the last four years. So I feel like there's more teams that are relevant now, right? I mean, we talk about this. There, there, you could conceivably come up with 10 teams that could win the title, right? Like conceivably, like everything you know, broke that, well. Maybe, that, maybe that's why I was pushing the idea of a league championship to is a little extra incentive and a little marker because one of the things that bothers me with the NBA is that making the playoffs doesn't matter. Doesn't feel like an achievement. Like the majority of teams make the playoffs. They're never going to be able to make it anything. I mean, like you're advocating sort of without saying it to go into like the Premier League model of English soccer. But the problem is like we're not bringing up a G League team. Like you're not relegating an. No, NBA. I'm not saying that. I, I'm saying, but just even like in my brain, like if 16 out of 32 teams made the playoffs, that would make more sense to me. It'd feel like, hey, at least in the top half of the league. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't know. Like it's, it, I think it's fine. And like, you need those teams get playoff shares. Like there's a reason to compete if you're, you know, trying to get the eighth spot. Like, I don't know. I, I don't think that that actually really matters, but before we go way down this rabbit hole, uh, let's uh, throw it over to Tal and we'll get his opinion on kind of some of the NBA draft picks and, and sort of his analytical model that he used uh, also as. Can you do me a favor though, before you do that? Cause you rejected both my ideas. I'm not proven to be a genius. I have to study more. Where can I learn more about the NBA and sports in general? It's funny you say that. I was getting into this, but uh, obviously we've been pitching The Athletic the last couple weeks, and we just found out that they have 500,000 subscribers the other day, so that's quite interesting. But given it's the NBA offseason, and there are a lot of things to kind of read about, free agency is winding down, but you know, like we called this show Think Tank just with two big ideas, but same thing with The Athletic. They offer all. They offer their subscribers a full suite of local and NBA cover, local and national NBA coverage, and they are offering an incredible deal for exclusive content, articles written by top experts, engaging podcasts, videos, and more. So if you visit the underdog, theathletic.com backslash the underdog NBA for forty percent off a yearly subscription at only two ninety nine per month. That is theathletic.com backslash underdog NBA, and you can take advantage of this amazing deal. There are some articles on Kevin Durant's college days, how the Heat and Jimmy Butler will integrate, if the Pelicans should be taken seriously, and more. The Athletic is a subscription-based publisher of smarter sports coverage for diehard fans. The model is very simple. No ads, no pop-ups, and no autoplay videos. As Zan said, this coverage goes well beyond game recaps and provides much smarter analysis and a deeper perspective about teams and leagues. Some of their top guys – David Aldridge, Sham Sharania, Sam Amick, Seth Davis, if you like college, Pierre Lebrun, if you like hockey, Jay Glazer for football. So visit theathletic.com backslash underdog NBA for 40% off a yearly subscription at just $2.99 per month. That is theathletic.com backslash underdog NBA. And enjoy this interview with Tal Boguer of Dribble Analytics. Zan, are you going to introduce our guest or what? 
I'm going to introduce it because I'm pl- proud to. This is like my <laughs> proudest achievement in the NBA. It shows me that I have any sort of insight at all. Uh, Tal Bogare, um, analytical guru. Welcome on, back on the show. Special second appearance. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, guys. And for people who maybe missed the first episode, you know, it's like Infinity War. You have to kind of keep up with all of them. Um, he made a big appearance like Thanos. Uh, Tal writes this amazing um, analytical posts on his blog, um, which is Dribble Analytics. Uh, what's the official name? Dribbleanalytics.blog. And it's stuff that's like way out of our pay grade, but just using machine learning to understand all this different stuff about stats. Um, as good as anything you could read online on ESPN or anywhere else on, on The Athletic. And the kind of interesting quirk is Tal is, how old are you now? I'm 18. Just turned 18 a month ago. And you agreed to go to Yale. They rec- successfully recruited you. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, hopefully you still have time once you're uh, partying. I hope, <laughs> I hope college doesn't really ruin you, Tal. I hope <laughs> that we still get these posts. And then like next year, you're not like writing, uh, you know, machine learning about the best places to score pot or something. Um, but the post that you just wrote is something that is really interesting to me and to Tyler, because it's about the draft and how do you un- use analytics to understand this like great mystery, which prospects are going to be good or not. And I think, Tyler, you're unique in the sense that you have a coaching background. You actually study the film on all these guys. You tell me the strengths and weaknesses based on tape. I'm more of like a casual fan in the sense that like I look, at, I watched a few games on TV. I watched the tournament. I watched the highlights and the YouTube and then look at their box scores. Um, so Tyler, like how much as a coach, like when somebody comes in with this like huge amount of analytical background, like do you have that natural inclination? I don't trust this or you want to learn more? Yeah, I think learning more is, you know, and the first time the towel was on, we talked a little bit about this and kind of like the open source analytics that he he uses. But I think, you know, if you're going to be a really good coach and, and get really good at your job, especially as a front office member, I, I think one of the keys is you always have to be open to wanting to explore more data. And some will show you certain things that maybe you knew and some will show you certain things that you did not know. And I think with this one, Tal, it's really interesting now that we're through Summer League. Why don't you kind of explain how this model's set up? You, you sort of are attacking the whole, like, which draft pick is, is more likely to be an all-star. And there is a too-long-didn't-read at the end of the post, and, and we will obviously link this on Twitter as well. But why don't you kind of get into your methodology on how you are going to tell us what everyone seemingly already knows, that Zion Williamson is supposedly going to be the best player in the draft? Yes. So the methodology pretty much is we're taking um, a combination of typical stats that you guys would think is what defines a good player. So like points, rebounds, assists, those kind of things, but then also some efficiency stats. And then most importantly, probably is the pick. So um, this isn't really a thing for like before the draft because kind of what it shows is that NBA GMs are are generally pretty good at picking and that the the spot the player was picked at was the biggest predictor of whether they would become an all-star or not. But we're pretty much taking those factors together and evaluating all the top 10 picks between the 1990 and 2015 drafts and seeing which ones became all-stars and uh, what the differences in the stats were and how we can apply that to this year's draft. And so I was reading your methodology and it's interesting you went all the way back to 1990. I thought it was smart. You said since they had the three-point line, and you picked 
counting stats like points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, efficiency stats, true shooting, three-point um, attempt ratio, I guess, for, and free throw or just made, I guess. And like, how did you pick which ones? Like when you go back and say, I want to use these stats, why is true shooting just, just better than effective field goal percentage? Like what d- made you gravitate towards the specific stats that you do to compare? Good question. Well, a big thing in these types of models is that we don't want to have variables that are very, very similar to each other because then that kind of messes them off when you have, like, if we would have, you know, steals and blocks and then like defensive win shares or something too, where steals and blocks, or a better example probably is if we had three point percentage, field goal percentage, and effective field goal percentage, where effective field goal percentage can be predicted really easily from three point and field goal percentage so it's kind of a useless stat in the model so then what we're trying to do pretty much is bring as many different aspects as possible without having any overlaps like true shooting as opposed to effective field goal percentage lets us add um free throw percentage because obviously effective field goal percentage is just field goals and threes and true shooting percentage adds the free throws made tell how do you normalize for sort of not necessarily strength of schedule, but like obviously John Morant's numbers at Murray State were great. And anyone who watches the film can can see like the the natural ability as a passer and obviously the athleticism, but that doesn't really change the fact that he played in the OVC and somebody like Zion or RJ Barrett played in the ACC. Do you try to normalize and use your catch-alls like per 100 possessions or more percentage-wise stats like steal percentage, block percentage, rebound percentage? Are you trying to do that rather than normal counting stats? Or what's kind of the methodology to sort of score all these guys in a vacuum? Um, well, first of all, strength of schedule is one of the inputs for the model. Yep. And actually, if we look at the difference between the strength of schedule for for picks who made an all-star team and picks who didn't make an all-star team, the median strength of schedule is actually very, very similar. There's practically no difference. And in some of these models, people like to you know, kind of standardize it so that all values are between 0 and 1 or instead of using raw stats, use ranks and those kind of things, and just using the raw data without any per 40 or per 100 possessions gave us the best performance. So that's what we ended up using. Uh, can I, I was going to, I was just going to apologize to Tal for, for Tyler daring to think that you would not consider strength of schedule. I mean, come on, this guy's going <laughs> Yale. That's like a Dartmouth kid. No, 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 that, that. that's, that, that's actually not as much of what I was saying is that like, I got your question. Well, the, the depth that, it, and, and this has kind of always been, a, and I think as guys review prospects and I'd be interested to kind of hear your guys' take on this, but as you kind of review prospects, it's like with a guy like John Moran, and I have no problem with the teams that he played. And I think the OVC, I generally think the depth of the ACC is better, but obviously the top of the OVC might be as good as, you know, playing Wake Forest, who has got awful last year. But it's like, there's not as much film on a guy like that that's usable. And I think that's where it's like when GMs get in and they decide they're going to pick, your own intel and your own analytics are very important because you're not going to watch like John Morant's game against Eastern Kentucky where he had 25, 12, and 10 and be like, oh my gosh, he's the best player ever. Like you're going to want to look at him against Marquette and be like, wow, that was really good. But the fact of the matter remains, like John Morant might be the best player that Marquette played all year too. So like there's a lot of kind of like normalizing, I think that has to go into these numbers when you then take them into evaluation. And that's kind of why I wanted to figure out why that was the methodology, you know? Because I agree with pick too. Like the number one pick and the number eight pick have similar stats two years into their career. The number one pick is going to be the all-star just because his name is better. And so that stands to reason that, you know, that would stand out a little bit later on in the future. But 
I wasn't necessarily denigrating anybody, but I, I, was, <laughs> no, I was just kidding. I, I, I think the pick thing is interesting because we talked about it on the show last week or two weeks ago. I don't know. It's how you follow like the NBA and, and Sam Presti got all these picks. And, and we always say like, you know, mid to late first rounders are nice. They're certainly nice assets and you can throw them in trades. You can use them to trade up. But in general, like the first pick is, you know, if, if he's not an all-star, you did something wrong. And I don't think that's just a reputation, too. I mean, they tend to be the best players. In basketball, it's kind of plain and nakedly obvious as opposed to football, where it does seem like there's so many factors that it is hard to really understand who's going to be good or not. I mean, I think the number, right, Tal, is 64% of number one overall picks have had at least one all-star appearance. Is that? Am I right about that? Yeah, and it's interesting with that because for some reason, like, uh, there's generally, it's like as you get into... Uh, as you get picked later than it's your all-stars but then like there are more number three overall all-stars than there are number two overall all-stars and there's the same number of two and five and also like number seven picks were only eight percent all-stars but number eight picks were 20 percent all-stars so there's still a lot of randomness there where it just like happens to be like that and also going back to the john moran example i feel like that's one of the things that Obviously, aside from including strength of schedule, it's kind of hard to quantify that. And that's like one of those factors, like like a player's motor or like their character or something like that, where a team figures out like, yeah, obviously we can't judge John Morant. Like we can't judge his game based off how well he scored against all these players. But there are still things that are always going to be translatable, like, like his vision and whatever against these players and his shot form and that kind of stuff. Was there anybody that scored much higher or lower than you expected? Like when you saw it, it kind of caused you to make a double take based on maybe your own opinions of them in college? Um, Jackson Hayes initially, like in two of the models, he had the second highest all-star probability <laughs> behind Zion. And that seems kind of surprising, but actually um, a couple of weeks before I did a post where it was um, similarity between picks and like historical top 10 picks or historical lottery picks. And part of this is just because Jackson Hayes was like the only true classic center in the top 10, but he had, he had a high similarity to Carl Anthony Towns, and he was the only player to have his top five most similar players included, Towns or Embiid. And so he has a lot of those similarities in that he's, like he, he appears very strong defensively, and he seems like he's going to be a rim runner, but at the same time, he shot 74% from the free throw line in college, which is really impressive. And, you know, the interesting part about that, and that's why I think where people analytically, Zan, and I'll let you happen in a second, but like, I think people would say like, well, how can he be like Towns and Embiid? Well, in college, like you could see that they were skilled, but they played very close to the rim. They were rim protectors defensively. So like that profile of freshman year Joel Embiid and freshman year Carl Towns were super strong defensive anchors who, who profile to be really well, do really well in the pick and roll because they shot really, really well at the rim. And that's what Jackson Hayes did, albeit at a, at a smaller sample. But I think if you guys remember, both Embiid's and Embiid and Carl Towns played like 20-something minutes a game as freshmen. Like, because the Towns team that was undefeated for a long time, they played like the two five-men units and Embiid was coming off the bench for a while. So it's really interesting to see those two guys pop with him. But at the same time, it, it absolutely makes sense because of how they played as college freshmen, just like him. And, and now you're seeing it. I think if you looked at their model now, you'd be like, well, he's not like them at all. But I guess the fact remains that he could be like them because the foundation is like that. Yeah. And to, to review like the, you know, 
spoiler alert, like conclusions you, you alluded to, like compared to like what the pick normally yields, like whatever the eighth pick you expect, how many uh, chance of an all-star you love, or the model, I should say, loves Jackson Hayes, John Morant, Zion Williamson. And then it's really lower on specifically Darius Garland and DeAndre Hunter. So I wanted to ask you about those two. Darius Garland, you know, got hurt, um, played a limited sample size. So like, how does that factor into this? Um, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right with the limited sample size for Garland that it's kind of hard to judge him based off exclusively those seven games or however many games he played, especially when like in those games he was scoring well and like people like to make the comparison to Lillard in that he's really athletic and he he has the passing vision. So I think that's more of a, it just could be a sample size thing. But then for Hunter, I feel like he he's one of those players who seems to have less upside than you would normally want from a top pick because aside like usually when people think of upside they're thinking of these like super athletic players who can like develop a game and then like they can be like a Giannis or whatever but at the same time I feel like a big part of upside is if you have someone like Jalen Brown who didn't perform that well in college because he's not suited well for the college game where there's no spacing and it's not fast and I feel like like Hunter, like he he might have been a player who's more suited for the college game where he can play slowly with Virginia, and he doesn't have to. And people can't really take advantage of him not being the fastest player compared to the NBA, where that'll be more of a problem. And and I think I think too though the model is we're we're basing this off the potential to be an all star. So DeAndre Hunter grading out so low at the fourth pick doesn't necessarily mean he's not going to be a very good player. Like he's playing with Trey Young and. Maybe Cam Reddish takes a jump. I, I don't. I'm not as much of a believer in either of those things. I do like Trey Young a ton, but like DeAndre Hunter could still be every bit of the guy they want to get at four. But that guy might not be a star, and so I, I don't want to draw yeah, that definitely. conclusion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I thought DeAndre Hunter was so interesting because I agree with you, with Tyler, that I like DeAndre Hunter. I don't see really any chance he's going to be an All Star. I don't think that's like his game. But um, you know, analytics people just don't like him. I think also because you know, the, the rap on him, you know, he, he played really well this year, won a title, but he, you know, he was a junior basically. I mean, he came in and redshirted a year, then he played off the bench as a, as a redshirt freshman. And then this past year, it finally broke through. And then the other interesting thing I want to ask you about is just like the defense, like analytics of the defense. Cause you know, in that style, in that system, he had 0.6 steals a game, uh, 0.6 blocks a game, but he has this reputation as being like an otherworldly defender. And from like your experience with this art, you know, post or just in general, like how much gospel do we need to take from steals? Like, you know, like Matisse Tybull from Washington, like had what, like three steals a game. And everyone thinks he's a great defender of that. Everyone thinks DeAndre Hunter is a great defender more based on the eye test. Like, do they always go together or is it more scheme and coaching than, than we think? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, very hard thing to do because like uh, Daryl Morey, for example, always says that there's no publicly available defensive stat or metric that actually shows how, how good a player, uh, how good a player is at defense because there are so many contextual factors where it's like, if you happen to be like a free safety type of player on defense where you get to roll around a bit more and you get the lighter matchups, then you might be in a position to get a lot more steals where if you're like, a, a, if you're exclusively playing 
uh, like playing close to the rim, then you might get a lot of blocks just because that's where you are and that's where a lot of shots are being taken, not because you're good at blocking shots. So it's definitely something that's very difficult to add to these models. And it, it was actually interesting that for some of them, steals was one of the most important factors. It's, it's not something I would have expected. And I, I don't think most people would have expected steals to be the most important factor after pick. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about this before when I was working for the 76ers with, and Sam Hinkie, like one of the things they always said that translated the two stats that they thought actually translated the most or correlated for success was steal percentage and rebound percentage. And now rebound percentage might be a little bit different now because of the way teams sort of punt on offensive rebounding and, and what they decide to do in, ter- in terms of floor balance. But steal percentage was one thing that they thought actually translated. Like if you stole the basketball at a high rate in college, you were going to do that in the NBA. But it is an interesting point because, like, we did see this new 538 defensive metric come out, Draymond, which we talked about, but it did seem to favor bigs because they end up naturally contesting the most shots. Because It, it, it didn't seem to do a great job of maybe, I don't yeah, know. Well, putting well, Tal, like, what did you think of the, the Draymond stat got a lot of attention? I don't know if you saw it and if you had an opinion on that versus, you know, ESPN Real Plus Minus or just other defensive stats that we see out there, the advanced league. And, Box and, plus minus. Yeah, and we're talking about like catch-all defensive stats because I do think like I've talked about the the pitfalls of defensive rating and box plus minus and stuff in the past. It's it's really hard. But did you see the new Draymond stat on five thirty-eight? Uh, yeah, I looked through it a bit, and I mean it's it's really easy in general to look at these stats that try to uh, that give like a total view of defense and then say that they're bad because they like for example Kemba Walker graded pretty well in Draymond even though he like most people wouldn't say he's a great defender obviously because he's pretty small and he's not he doesn't put as much effort in there at least in the past so I mean I think in general they have the right approach and that all like anytime you try to make some type of defensive stat like that there are going to be outliers simply because like with with RPM as much as you try to take away and like individualize the player's impact, they're still always on the floor with other guys. So even if you like minimize the outliers where they gave up a lot of points in this stretch of possession of possessions because they were with this player who's bad at defense, you're still like including that in part of the metric. Mm, that's actually that's, interesting. Yeah, that's what always scares me, just as like somebody who's not an analytical genius, is like you know, paying for defensive reputation or paying for defensive stats that are acknowledged to be limited. Like, so when I see somebody like the Phoenix give Ricky Rubio 17 million on the idea that he's a good defender, and then you, you read 538's model says he's not a good defender. So, I mean, like how much can you really trust that? And maybe that's your point about drafting DeAndre Hunter based on the reputation of him being a great defender. Um, so I understand why the stats don't always love him. I, I mean, I've told you before that I think that, Virginia guys are going to age a little bit worse in the NBA than I think people think. Like I'd be a little bit more wary of taking a guy from Virginia despite their team success, just because I think their system is so good. And I think Tony Bennett is so good at identifying guys that can play the way that he wants and the system that he wants. And it's so hard to plan for what you get when you play Virginia because they're so defensively solid, but the way they defend just isn't the way that defenses at the NBA go in the NBA guard. So like, whereas Ty Jerome might've been a pretty good college defender. I can see people saying like, damn, Ty Jerome's going to be a bad defender at the NBA. Like I get it, you know, 
And I think that's where taking a guy like DeAndre Hunter is, I don't know. It's not bad. I don't think it's bad. I think he's going to be an okay player, but like, I, I certainly liked Darius Garland better than I liked DeAndre Hunter at, at four. Just in well, th- I thought yeah, I thought it was interesting because the Hawks came away with um, Hunter at four and then Cam Reddish at 10. And I thought they were pretty similar as prospects, really. Um, but they're very polarizing and, and different virtues. You know, DeAndre Hunter on paper had great stats and, and Cam Reddish on paper. You know, if you look at the shooting and everything else, had a bad year. But your model liked Cam Reddish. Why is Cam Reddish, you know, based on the stats only? It's not based on high school pedigree. So how does Cam Reddish fare well on yours um i mean i i think that cam reddish is one of those players like we were talking about before who might benefit a lot from the difference in the nba game versus the college game where when he's going to be on the hawks he's not going to be playing alongside two there two players in zion and Barrett who aren't great outside players and are always going to be inside and when you're a slasher then playing with trey young and Kevin Herter is going to be so much easier than playing with Zion and RJ Barrett. So, uh, I mean, I, I think that he just has those same types of qualities where like the pace and the spacing is definitely going to help him get, get into that next level of scoring where you can increase in efficiency, his efficiency and show his talent kind of like he did in high school. Speaking of other Duke guys, the model's a little bit lower on RJ Barrett than it would have been on a traditional third overall pick. I, I think actually in. I want to say in two of them, it was lower. And then in two of them, oh no, I'm sorry. In all, in all three, three of the four, it was lower than a traditional all-star pick. I think he ended up being average graded out at like 50% chance of being an all-star, but still the third best player in this draft class in terms of that metric. Do you feel like his inefficiency is the reason that it, it drove him down a little bit? Cause we are still talking about a guy that at 19 years old was the first college freshman to average 22, four and four in a major conference, I believe ever. So were you surprised to see him a little bit lower than the traditional third pick? Or do you think it just kind of speaks to the depth of this draft that it really was more top heavy with, with Zion and then John Morant and then everybody else? Um, I mean, even though his average prediction was a little bit lower than the average third pick, it was the smallest difference between the prediction and the, the all-stars at that pick out of anyone in the data set. And two of the models had him as the third highest all-star probability and the other two had him at fourth. So, I mean, I, I think that it's saying in general that he's around the third pick talent in that. Um, obviously Zion and John Morant put up crazy impressive stats with amazing efficiency and were picked higher. So they, they're going to get the higher all-star probability. So I, I think it, it kind of shows the strength of Morant and Williamson instead of like their weakness with efficiency. So let's talk about Zion too before I know Zan has one more thing as well, but I do want to talk about Zion because it does feel like the hype is just, just absolutely insane. And, and you know, the analytics community is so rarely like unified around one guy. I I think like everybody kind of can poke holes in things that they do, but just given, it seems as like when you put any part of Zion's game into any line of code, it just comes back as like, this guy is unbelievable. If you kind of had to, poke a hole maybe in one of the things that Zion does, doesn't well. If he's going to end up right now, I think it said there's a 78% chance he ends up as an all-star at a certain point in his career. If we see the other 22%, which is still one out of every four times, you know, great math by me, but 
What's <laughs> gonna not even <laughs> rounding properly, but okay. Yeah, no, I know, I know. What's gonna what's <laughs> gonna be in that twenty two percent, Tal? Like what pops in the model of like, hey, if this doesn't work out, here's why. Because I think everybody knows about like, you know, defensively he was great. Like he's a much better passer than people think. His shooting efficiency was the best we've probably ever seen. His player efficiency rating, all that stuff. But like, what's going to be a pitfall if it doesn't work out for Zion? Like, what is one or two things that kind of hold him back? Um, I, I think that's a natural thing that people would say is that he's not going to be like, like there's not going to be the same difference in athleticism between him and NBA players as there was between him and college players. But he's still, still, he's still going to be one of the most athletic and physically gifted players in the NBA, and he's still going to be incredibly fast for it. For someone of his size, and incredibly strong for someone that fast. So, I I, I think that probably one of the biggest things that's going to hurt him is it could be the team construction. Where if he's not surrounded by enough shooting, then there could be a problem where like he he can't get out on the break a lot, which is something that he could really excel at. But if he doesn't get those types of opportunities and he doesn't get that spacing, then that could hurt his development but as the Pelicans are constructed now where you have Lonzo Ball who is also great at pushing the pace which is really going to help him and they signed JJ Redick and they're kind of surrounding him with great talent that fits him so yeah uh, it's interesting I saw that um I was reading uh Zion, I mean talk about overwhelming the competition he shot 75 percent from the field inside the three-point line 75% and Shaq as a junior in college shot 61%, which shows it's you a absurd. difference. It's, it's absurd. Some of the stuff that Zion did is probably not appreciated enough for as much hype as there is. And he was out of shape at summer league. Like, but just- I, I do think like Tal's point, I was going to say like, he also got two steals a game. And so like when you get a steal and you're Zion Williamson, that's, that's an easy two points. So it kind of reminds me in some ways when Zion was dominating at Duke, do you guys remember like when LeBron and Wade were at the peak of their powers on the, on the Olympic team? And I just remember that team was being dominant and getting a lot of breaks and steals and transition dunks. But when there was a smart team that like Spain, for example, that wasn't going to turn the ball over, uh, wasn't going to be overwhelmed by their talent. uh, That team had to win closer games and they had to score in a half court and I think this past Duke team had the same thing. Like I didn't pick them in the tournament because I'm like a team like Virginia, who's not going to turn the ball over, is not going to fall into that trap. I think Zion might struggle a little bit in that regard too. Like, like Tyler, that's the question for you maybe as a coach. Like, do you think he's going to score easily in the half court in the NBA? You know, I, I do think there'll be enough spacing for him. I, I think we're going to see him more in a Draymond Green type role to start his career where a lot of his buckets come like he's just going to out hustle guys. He'll he'll rebound better than Draymond does and he won't pass it quite as well. But I I just think like he's a small ball five and I think they're not going to run a ton of stuff for him. I think they'll run some stuff to get him on like a naked side where he's kind of matched up against a big and that'll happen. But I also think he's going to be so dynamic in transition that it's probably not going to matter. But if you ask me to kind of like set the over under on Zion points per game next year, like I'm not thinking this is going to be Blake Griffin where he averages over 20 points a game unless they are, they play really, really up tempo. Like I would say, 16 somewhere in that neighborhood would be really reasonable to me. Like I could see him averaging like 15, 10 and five early. And that be, and then like, you know, two steals in a block or something or two blocks in a steal, like three stocks. If you want to steal from Bill Simmons, like something like that. And I think he could still be a really dominant player at, at those numbers. I don't think this is a 26 point per game guy, just because I don't think teams run a lot of plays for guys like him. 
And I, I think that's what we'll see early in his career. Um, one last question I want to ask, Tal, like, because honestly, like, I'm no, all jokes aside, like your, you know, computer learning stuff, machine learning, I should say, all the stuff you do is as advanced as anything I see online. Maybe, maybe NBA teams have stuff like this that they just don't share with the public. Um, Correct. They do. But, but do you, when you watch like the news breakout, you know, like I mentioned Ricky Rubio or whomever else, like, are there certain teams that you, you watch that, you know, the road wire, like news blurbs come in, so-and-so signed this player, so-and-so traded for this player, certain teams that you think really get it and certain teams or the one or two teams that you think are like continually making these sort of mistakes with analytics. Um, I mean, I, I think that one thing that that's kind of hard for most fans to see with the contracts is, is that, uh, it like makes this whole thing pretty interesting with teams making moves is like the opportunity cost of not signing a player. Cause like, if you're looking at like, for example, the auto Porter contract where when the wizard signed it, they were like, everyone was like, Oh, this is such a horrible contract. They're giving uh, a, a rookie max extension to someone who's practically a spot of shooter with, with above average defense, but like they're already capped out. And if they don't sign him, then it's not like they have cap it's not like they can use the money that they would have given him on someone else so i think that in general like like when teams i i can't really think of any specific examples for this off season but like if teams are given contracts that seem to be kind of big for like for now but then it could just be because they know that their rookies are about to be extended next offseason and this is the last year they're going to have cap space or something like that. Like, like for the Celtics, for example, Jalen Brown is going to get his extension or he, he's going to start his new contract next year or after this year. And so realistically, some team is probably going to offer him a max and he's not going to... And then the Celtics aren't going to have that cap space anymore because Hayward's contract is off the books when Tatum gets an extension. And so then that's two maxes right there. So then people say like, oh, they're not going to win the championship with Kemba Walker as their main player. But it's like, if they don't use it now, they're not going to have the cap space in the future un- unless they think that somehow they can make a play in like the, in like two years from now when Hayward's contract is up. But then at that point, like you would rather have your young guys go to the playoffs and learn from that and play alongside great players and develop that way instead of having them play alongside like get like cap space and not be able to develop at all and play meaningless games. It's, I mean, like, I, it's like Charlotte this year with Terry Rozier, like everybody killed the contract, but like they were hard capped. So like, unless they traded, you know, they got him back and then like absorbed him into that Kemba Walker cap space. Like they weren't going to be able to go out and get another like NBA level starting point guard. Cause they were hard capped before that because of the decisions they've made. So when their money comes off the books next year, that contract still sucks. <laughs> yeah, that that's one case where maybe nothing is no, better than. The, I, but I, I I know what you guys are saying. Like he's Golden State, be better I than think, replacement level though is the point uh, that Tal's making. Well, well, I think Golden State. I was going to say like I don't like D'Angelo Russell, but um, for the price, I think he got like what twenty five plus million. But but to your guys' point, like it was either that or nothing because they had to make it work with the Durant sign and trade. So um, that makes sense. I'm 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 just looking constantly. I'm I, I'm looking for jobs. Tal, like once you're, I don't even know if you're going to last through Yale because I the Knicks are pretty close to you. I think they could use you. I'm looking at it right now. 
I mean, you know, RJ Barrett, I think, was, as you mentioned, probably the right pick at three. But some of these other moves, I'm scratching my head. I think, I think we can get you in there, assistant GM, by the end of your junior year. You're going to have to be, you're going to be like a one and done Zion type prospect. Maybe. <laughs> Tal, where can, uh, where can people check you out on Twitter and then and reload your Reddit name and your uh, blog so people know where they can go and, and see the good work that you do? Um, the blog is dribbleanalytics.blog. Um, my Reddit username is dribbleanalytics and my Twitter handle is at dribbleanalytics, which is D-R-I-B-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S. We appreciate you coming on and uh, educating us a little bit. And uh, if we don't get a chance, best of luck this year at Yale. I'm sure you will learn a lot more, too. You're going to be a great asset for an NBA front office one day. And we, we can say that uh, we knew you one day when you're like, you know, building the Hornets after their front office gets fired. But <laughs> we, we appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, Zan, Tal is... Like I said, we, we talked about it at the top of the show, but super impressive. Anything that uh, he said about some of these top guys that stuck out to you? Yeah, no, I, we said it before too. The, the thing that we like about Tao too is he's not just like studying a spreadsheet. He's watching games. He's thinking about how it affects the stats and vice versa. Um, one thing he said, because I've been a DeAndre Hunter fan, um, but the idea that he would not adapt well to a faster paced game and something we've talked about before watching him at Virginia, he does seem deliberate in the way he plays. So that'll be interesting to watch too. I, I don't see him as a, um, or maybe he, maybe he's just been trained that way and he's, he can't wait to get unleashed. But I, I do think there's more of a chance that he, he's not going to be a primary guy or even a secondary guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's going to be an all-star, but that doesn't mean that he can't be a, a starter. Yeah. And I, uh, along the same vein, like, I think we had kind of talked about that with DeAndre Hunter a little bit, and it was interesting to see his model kind of graded him out. Just not, and again, I, we said this in the interview, not to be a bad player, but just his chances of being an all-star were significantly lower than anyone else in the top 10, other than Rui Hamushimura, which I think we both knew as well. His model was also super high on Jackson Hayes, which was really, I was really happy to see, because that's a guy that I have been high on and talked about a little bit of why I thought his profile was good. I do think it's very interesting, though, that you could see kind of all-star appearances based on picks. And it, it, was, it was funny that we got Tal back on this week because we've talked a good bit about trading draft picks over the last couple months and why we don't necessarily feel like it's terrible to trade draft picks if you trade, you know, even beyond like the fifth pick because the chances of getting a star that's going to like alter your franchise just seems so low. And it seems like Tal's model, again, just really hammered that home. And, and so now we're seeing resources from everywhere kind of show what we initially thought, you know, and you just did the quick little, let's gather all the information of the last 10 years and see what we think. But now we're seeing legitimate analytics out there that, that since 1990. That. Yeah. 1990. Yeah. And I think there's certainly busts um, or guys on paper that should have been great, but more often than not, I think you'd agree. It seems like these guys are not failing for basketball reasons. Like somebody like Michael Beasley on paper, I mean, his stats in college were freaking amazing. Uh, so it's, I, I don't know, you know, behind the scenes, uh, uh, you know, he maybe didn't have the, the right mentality. Um, so I do think scouting NBA is easier in that way on court than football, of course. Because football, I mean, at the end of the day, you, even quarterbacks, like you don't know how much the coaching is helping them or not. You don't know how much the system is helping them or not. 
coaching certainly matters in, in basketball and it, systems matter to some degree, but I mean, maybe what, 5%? Like no one is going around saying, you know, God, without a good coach, LeBron James would be terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, I don't, but that, that's where like, you know, and we, we mentioned this with Tal a little bit, but, and you, you kind of started off the interview saying this, like, where do you do with this? And I think that one of the things that analytics does that everyone, everyone kind of looks at numbers and they think like, oh, this is the be all end all. But what you really should be doing is like looking at the numbers and being like, okay, let's look into why we're getting these results. Like, how can we use them? Let's research this more. Let's see how we can make this study better. And again, I don't know, you know, we've been shilling for the athletic the last couple of weeks, but you know, Scott McLuhan, who used to be the GM for the Redskins. Right. Yeah. So he, he actually, they, they posted an article today about how like he was some sort of like scouting wonderkin and obviously football to basketball is apples to oranges. But one of the things that he said when they asked him about Josh Doxson was that like, you know, he kind of missed on that one because he didn't really get a chance to know Josh Doxson. And I think saying your point is a really good one. Like, you don't necessarily know a ton about guys when you just look at their stats. You don't know how they kind of were set up to succeed or fail at at, at different levels. And I think that just looking at numbers isn't going to be the case. And that's why I kind of wanted to see with with Tao why he thought if Zion didn't succeed, why won't he? Or if R.J. Barrett doesn't succeed, why won't he? Because we know R.J. Barrett's a talented kid, no matter what people think about him. Like, he's good enough to play in the NBA. But what's the difference between him being a volume scorer and a superstar. And I don't know that the margin is wide enough to really make a... a I, I could see it. I, I think with RJ, it's, it's going to be shooting and efficiency. And with Zion, it's going to be scoring in the half court. And also, you know, he he gets banged around. He plays really hard. Uh, two injuries later, two knee injuries later and 20 pounds heavier. And suddenly, you know, that massive advantage goes away. I don't know if he's going to necessarily have a 15-year career as a superstar for that reason. Um, but in terms of if, he, if he's Zion that we see now, he's going to be an effective player. I, you know, I, I think, I think his model said what, like 75% chance all-star. I think that sounds 70, pretty 70, accurate. Yeah, 78%. And that, like I said, I mean, I did some real yeah, that's, quick. Math. That's really high. I would take that. I mean, that you can't ask for much better than that. And, and he, you know, and his model showed that like 64% of the time, the number one overall pick is going to be an all-star one time in their career. So Zion even being, you know, 14% higher than that speaks very highly to what people think about him. And again, I think, you know, the cool stuff about this is that we, you know, we have more information out there to kind of decide. And, you know, you see things in summer league, but a lot of guys didn't play. And so it's very interesting to kind of monitor stuff like this, Zan, I think, going forward. And and for Tal, I think he's going to keep being curious and keep plugging things in to see if you can normalize based on different situations because I think that's all that analytics needs to do is find answers to a lot of different questions and questions I think that everybody has. I think that's one of the challenges the analytic community has, not Tal, just in general. It's like you're making a model with sort of an end result in mind. So like I'll see like sometimes quarterback rankings and grades and analytics being like, I really want this model to have Tom Brady is the best, you know, or or Peyton Manning is the best. So how do I configure the model so that's the conclusion which is great it might not necessarily be predictive in that way it's just sort of like reflective of what's worked in the past like is that going to apply in the future so it's it's always a constant like evolving challenge and i do think that's a really good point too before we get out of here and and we will sign off here in a minute but kind of understanding like predictive analytics is is different because not everything is going to totally predict what you do like player efficiency rating shows what you've done in the past but Tal's rankings are, are going to try to predict 
what these guys are going to do in the future. So you have to, you have to read and research those two things very differently, you know? And I think like, that's where when you, well, when you see the scouting community and you see how splintered it gets, especially with like former players and old school coaches, I think just having more information and, and being able to explain that information easily is a really good skill to have. I mean, that's yeah, what and I, I think you're right about more information. So, like for example, if you could more factors essentially, like if you could factor in, you know, system. It's as we mentioned, less important in, in basketball than football. But you know, in football, you say like you can't measure a pro style quarterback versus spread quarterback. They're totally different. And in basketball, it might be different in terms of the defense and the scheme, and also roles. Like there, it's not just shooting guard, small forward. Like if you were playing the role that Cam Reddish did this year for Duke, that is a different role than if he went to, you know, Washington state and had the ball in his hands every play, you know, which is why, and, and, and it's funny, you know, and this will be my last thought on this before we get out of here and you can add anything after, but like, it's funny. Cause like Clay Thompson was rightly criticized. He had the whole thing with like the weed before the draft, but like Clay Thompson was criticized from like, not maybe not being an amazing shooter at Washington state and taking a ton of shots and being a volume guy. And he goes 11th. And then Cam Reddish, who seems like a worse prospect than Clay Thompson just from a statistical analysis is criticized for going to Duke and not having that role. So again, there are two different prospects at, at two different time periods. And one is assuredly a star and potential hall of famer. And one guy's just a top 10 pick, but it's like, you can, you can look at a bunch of different things and, and you can spin your argument in a lot of ways. And I think that's why having guys like Tao who are consistently pumping out new information or, or, or better, more research information is really important for the scouting community. Yeah. And I think it does come in concert with sort of not only eye test, but behind the scenes test. And unless we find a way to like scan your brain and know your personality. Well, that's coming. That's coming soon. Blake, Blake J. Harris. That's Blake J. Harris's next book. About well, wait, I'll leave you with Michael Beasley's stats in college. 26 points a game, 12 and a half rebounds a game, one and a half blocks, shot 38% from three. Um, You know, you tell me this guy's not going to be a good NBA player. No, and, I mean, his numbers in the big 12 were pretty freaking similar to Kevin Durant's right and, one very similar. and a year later and yeah. uh and they went the same pick and, and turned out very differently um so it does it does change you can't really you know if, if you met Michael Beasley and Kevin Durant maybe you would know that but from us on the outside you're a little more connected than I am but we, it's hard that's why we, it's more information is better that's why it's great to talk to Tal and other people and talk to scouts and talk to old school guys and new school guys and get as much information as you can yeah, that's a good way, I think, to uh, put a bow on this week's episode. Uh, a much more cerebral episode of the Underdog. Somewhat. The first NBA. half was me rambling. Second half, smarter. But, you know, <laughs> we're improving. But, uh, slowly. As always, we appreciate everyone who listens. I am at CYS Tyler on Twitter. He is at Zan underscore Ellison. Uh, email the show, ZandrickEllison at gmail.com. And then check out Zan on Reddit. He has written a ton of stuff lately. Zandrick Ellison on Reddit. He's got a bunch of stuff still to come. So uh, we appreciate it. And Zan, as always, it's a pleasure. And we will be back next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Underdog Sports NBA Show with your hosts, Tyler Laurie and Zandrick Ellison. Tune in next week for more NBA storylines and news. 